Welcome to the Qualitalks Podcast, a show about pharma and GMP. The pharmaceutical industry is a fascinating and complex field, and it takes countless people to bring a product to the market. In this podcast, we bring you some of the industry's brightest minds who will share their wisdom with you. You will learn about various subjects such as GMP, new trends in pharma, and leadership. This episode is sponsored by Dot Compliance, the industry's first ready-to-use quality management solution powered by the Salesforce platform. Deploying a new EQMS has never been quicker or more cost-effective. And now, please welcome your host, Jan Kugel. Welcome to the Qualitox Podcast. I'm Jan Kugel, your host, and my guest today is Steve Galen. Steve is a veteran in the pharmaceutical industry, both in manufacturing and in clinical trials. He has been there for 27 years. He's also an entrepreneur and he is working on improving the way clinical trials are done. So today we are going to talk with him about what are clinical trials, what is their goal, what are the steps in clinical trials, and what are the biggest challenges and what is his solutions on how to solve them. So let's get to it. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the Qualitox Podcast. Uh, excited to have you on the show. Really honored. Thank you, Jan. It's really great to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Yeah, so I, I think it will be quite an interesting topic to talk about because usually I talk about uh, the pharmaceutical industry uh, in the GMP window during the production, during the commercial phase. So I think it would be quite interesting to go a bit back and see where it all uh, starts. So in this episode, we'll talk about uh, the basics of the clinical trials. So after the development where, we, uh, where the drugs are going to do clinical trials to see if they are fit to use in humans, it's a really fascinating field. So uh, Steve, what is your background there? Uh, how long have you been working in this field and what are the highest positions that you held there? Sure, Jan. So actually, I'm going to start at a place that most people might, might not expect, and that's that I actually started out in the industry in solid dosage and parental manufacturing. So I actually come from a very strong GMP background and believe it or not, understanding how manufacturing works and understanding quality standards around um, manufacturing in pharma is very important, very useful in terms of understanding how clinical trial works. So I uh, gave away a little bit of my background. I started out in big pharma in uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing. I spent Oh, about seven or eight years there. And then I moved over to R&D. This is all at um, Merck. I was at uh, one of the big pharmas and then spent about another eight years in research and development. The latter part of that I actually spent in project management. And project management is the first place in a pharma company where you can actually see the entire clinical trial. It's from sort of a hundred thousand foot level. It's very high, but you can see everything about a clinical trial. And then from there, I moved over to the CROs and I've been, I was in the CRO space for about 10 years before I went out on my own. Thank you for uh, that introduction. So uh, you say you are on your own. So what, what are you doing right now? So I actually went out and started a software-based consultancy and it'll be logical, hopefully, to understand why once we get through some of the discussion today. What I found was is that clinical trials, as hard as this is to believe, are so poorly designed and overseen 
that there's a huge opportunity to improve that. And once I had been in the industry for a long time and done my detective work and uh, did that detective work in very senior operational positions, it became clear to me that there was a need for uh, better solutions in terms of designing and overseeing clinical trials. Again, I know to the audience that's going to sound crazy. You know, this is an industry that I saw one industry report, report by 2025, the expectation is clinical trials will, uh, uh, the spend for clinical trials will be about 70 billion US a year. And so you'd think in something that massive, of course, everything is figured out, but it's not figured out. Great. So uh, maybe we will uh, get into it and see how, what are the issues there and why, how you're trying to solve it. And as we promised to the audience, uh, we'll start at the beginning. We'll try to cover uh, the topic from the helicopter uh, view and understand the, uh, what clinical trials are. So let's start with the beginning. So what are clinical trials and what is uh, their goal? It's actually a fascinating question, Jan, because if you go to people in the industry who are designing and running clinical trials for a living, you'll get many different answers. So I'm going to distill it down to an answer that, frankly, no one can argue with. And once you have that answer in mind, it's going to help orient you as to how you have to design and, and run clinical trials. So the answer is the, re the main goal of a clinical trial is to answer the question or the questions that have been posed in the clinical trial protocol. So the, <clears throat> for those who aren't familiar, in a clinical trial, the protocol is the thing that contains all the information um, about the study drug, as well as how it's going to be administered to the, the people who enroll in the trial. Uh, it'll have things in there like how many visits the patient will make during that period of time, um, that the trial is running, but also very importantly, it lists the questions that are uh, basically the basis for running this experiment, which is what a clinical trial is. So again, the main goal of a clinical trial is to get an answer to the question or questions that are posed in the protocol. So <clears throat> a lot of people, um, they sort of bristle at that definition. And what they say is, no, no, the purpose of a clinical trial is to enroll patients in the trial. But that isn't the main goal. Now, don't get me wrong here. Enrolling patients in the trial and patients in general, we have uh, the reason we're all in this industry is because we want to help human beings have healthier, happier lives. I'm not talking about that. Of course, that's true. But if you talk about the process that is a clinical trial, enrolling patients is actually sort of in the middle of it. Um, and you have to go back and remind yourself that the main goal of a clinical trial is to get a clean data set, that's what it's called, where all the data that have been collected are in the proper form. And you need clean data from a statistically acceptable number of patients who've completed treatment with the study drug. And then you use the data that you get from um, the, those patients who have taken the study drug to answer the questions posed in the protocol. So the problem, and we'll talk about this more later, is that the way that trials are currently conducted everyone sort of focuses on their piece of the trial and very, very few people are practically focused on getting to that main goal. So of course, people understand what the primary goal is, meaning getting uh, answers to the questions posed in the, posed in the protocol. They understand that on some sort of nebulous level, 
but as far as having a rigorous quantitative view of how all the activities that people perform for a clinical trial impact that main goal, it's not true. Thanks for uh, giving the overview of the goals. And you mentioned uh, protocols and uh, the questions to be answered. So uh, do all trials have the same questions or uh, what? how uh, people come to the right uh, questions to ask during the trials? It's a great question. So first, the, dis the disclaimer, which is I'm not a physician, right? I'm an engineer. So uh, you're going to get uh, my perspective on this. So uh, every therapeutic area and subspecialty, you know, every study drug is different. So yes, there are always going to be um, significant differences protocol to protocol. But equally, there's a lot of overlap um, or common uh, things that are, uh, uh, that are discussed in protocols. And in fact, there's been many efforts in the industry to sort of coalesce around what the basic things are and so that uh, the process of being able to develop a protocol is actually sped up. Now, another really interesting thing about this, and uh, I'll, I'll try to explain it so that um, it makes sense, is that think of a protocol as a bunch of things that have to be done. And so the more things you put in there that have to be done, logically, the longer it takes and the more complexity there is. So actually, one of the uh, most difficult things to deal with with uh, protocols is people refer to it as uh, protocol bloat, right? Is that a lot of things get shoved in there. And frankly, the more things that are in there, the longer it takes, the more complicated it gets. And that also has important impacts frequently on being able to enroll patients in the trial. Because as protocols get more complicated, frequently what happens is it gets harder to find patients that meet all the, they're called inclusion exclusion criteria, the criteria that are used to see if a person is uh, sort of fit for enrolling in the trial. So you actually asked a really good question, Jan, and um, uh, protocols are very different, but there's a lot of commonality as well. And the industry is trying to exploit that commonality again to make clinical trials uh, much more concise. It doesn't work very well uh, currently, but people are making real efforts to do that. Great. Uh, Steve, can you give an example for one or two questions just so uh, we understand uh, uh, what we are talking about, what the question looks like, and uh, what uh, has to be answered during the trial? So just a small example. Sure. So I'm going to focus on, again, on what are called inclusion-exclusion criteria, because those are very important since if a person, a uh, prospective patient, if you will, uh, doesn't meet these criteria, then they're not going to move forward into the enrollment process. So I'll just give two, um, uh, two clear ones, hopefully. One that's just typical, and then one that is sort of specific, okay? So a typical one might be body mass index. Um, or blood pressure, something like that. Um, because you can think about it is that if there are if there's a disease state that the medicine is supposed to treat, then you want to make sure that people not only have the disease, but that they also fit within a certain range, right? So for example, if you're doing a type 2 diabetes trial, then something like BMI um, and or blood pressure could be very important, right? So that's sort of standard. Now, what happens um, uh, I'll go to sort of the specific extreme now is that there are medicines uh, for which only certain genetic subtypes 
are uh, eligible to be enrolled in the trial because um, the the developers of the medicine have figured out that there are genetic subtypes um, that the medicine is more effective for. So there, what you might have is a very specific set of genetic tests that um, have to be performed to make sure that the person is, uh, you know, meets those criteria. And so those were criteria questions, basically the question that uh, the researchers ask uh, the uh, the patients who want to enroll into the trials uh, to see whether they are fit, right? And there are probably different questions that are not specifically later uh, patient-specific, uh, but uh, on uh, the effects of the drugs, right? So how it uh, reacts. So more scientific questions, basically, also are part of those Correct. protocols. Okay. Um, That's right. right. Uh, great. Thanks uh, for this summary and uh, those examples. I think it clarifies a bit. And um, still, for um, so still, we know that uh, clinical trials list quite a long time and they have different uh, phases and uh, they uh, different parts to those uh, clinical trials. Uh, so can you give an overview of that? Sure, Jan. And it's actually an excellent place to start if you want to understand how interconnected things are in a clinical trial and how, um, how much opportunity there is to better design and oversee them. So just a note up front, um, I'm going to answer your question talking about uh, the parts of a traditional clinical trial where patients actually come into a medical facility for testing on a regular basis. Uh, that Those are called patient visits when patients come into the medical facility for testing. But everybody is probably familiar with now, especially with COVID, that there's a whole new way of conducting uh, clinical trials. And uh, that's frequently referred to as decentralized clinical trials. So there are parts that are similar and parts that are different when you talk about a traditional trial versus a decentralized one. I'm not going to talk about decentralized trials here. Um, it just it'll be too confusing up front. Happy to address it uh, on a later question about the parts of the clinical trial just by sticking with a traditional clinical trial. So with that uh, caveat, let's talk about the main parts of a clinical trial, and there are nine of them. And each one of these pieces has subpieces, and that can get um, complicated. And so we're going to avoid talking about subpieces. We're just going to talk about the big parts. And the thing to keep in mind about all these things, Jan, is each part connects to the next part. And it's really, if you remember earlier on, what I said is that uh, I was going to reference manufacturing uh, in when we're talking about clinical trials. And this is actually where solid dosage manufacturing in the industry, you know what the steps are, right? So for example, when I was, um, you know, compressing tablets into the final tablet form, you would get the granulation and then you would drop it into the machine and then you would compress it in the tablets and then you would weigh it, et cetera, et cetera. Believe it or not, a clinical trial is really not that much different. However, the industry doesn't see it that way. So the reason I'm making a big deal out of this is because if you understand the parts that I'm going to describe and then understand that each one is connected to the next one, then you're going to see the problem that the industry current, currently faces. Okay, so here we go. Um, the first thing you have to do in a clinical trial, it's something called site selection. And that's where you select the medical sites that you want to participate in the study. So these are the, the facilities, the medical facilities where the patients are gonna come and enroll in the study. So step one, you have to select the sites. The next step is what is called site activation. 
So those sites that you selected, they have to go through a regulatory approval process to make sure that the sites and the personnel at the sites are qualified um, to be able to take on patients in this particular trial. So if all are familiar with things like institutional review boards or ethics committees, that's where uh, they come into play is during the site activation process. And at the end of the site activation process, a site sort of gets a stamp of approval and they're now ready to screen patients, which is the next step in the process. So the fourth step or the fourth part, fourth part in the process is now enrolling patients. So those patients who made it through the screening process enroll in the study, and now those patients are ready to start what they call the patient journey, which is uh, laid out in the protocol. It's how they'll take the study drug, how often they'll take it, and then um, what kind of data will be collected. So that takes us on to the next step. We're now on to the fifth step where data are collected from the patients when they come in for study visits to that site that we've been talking about. And so the number and the schedule of those visits is laid out in the clinical protocol. Sometimes data are collected, also collected by other means. So I don't mean to say that patients coming into a site um, is the exclusive way that data are collected, but it's probably the most common way. Now, the next step, it may sound sort of silly, but it's actually pretty important, is once those data are collected, they aren't automatically entered into any system, into any electronic system. So the sixth step is to take those data that were collected during the patient visits and then put those data into the appropriate electronic system. And that's usually called an electronic data capture system, an EDC system. And also, uh, try not to overcomplicate this a little, but sometimes uh, steps five and six, meaning the collecting the data and putting it into the system, are combined into one step. That's usually what happens in other industries, but in our industry, we're, we're just making progress towards that in perhaps the past five to six years. Um, so it's still pretty uncommon, unfortunately, but it does happen. Now we're on to the uh, seventh step, which is to review the collected data to make sure they meet the required data standards. So this is a little different than what we've talked about previously because what we're talking about here is data themselves have requirements. And what happens is there's a whole army of people. It's a whole profession, actually, to make sure that the data that are collected meet those requirements. Because if, they, if the data don't meet those requirements, they don't make it into the part of the study where they will be analyzed. So that's step seven. We're almost there, just two more. Um, the, the eighth part or the eighth step is to organize the data in a way so that the biostatisticians can answer the questions that were posed in the protocol using those data, right, that were collected and the term in the industry is the data were cleaned. So um, those statisticians come in at this eighth step, they analyze the data and they make those data available for analysis. And um, the last step in the process where those data are actually made available for analysis is something in the industry, it's usually referred to as database lock. So all the data have gone into a database, they've been cleaned, which is the term that's used, and now they're available for analysis, and that's called database lock or DBL. And what's interesting is, just so that people might have a little bit of familiarity with uh, clinical trials, Steps five and six and seven and eight, all these things, they're collectively referred to as data management. And now finally, 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 we get to the thing that we're interested in, right? Which is to perform uh, the required statistical analyses on the data 
and report the results, meaning now you're finally going to answer the questions that were pro that were posed in the protocol. So that final product is often called a clinical study report or a CSR. So what I just want to get across here is those steps are all essentially one after the other. And if any one of them gets delayed or accelerated, then you're going to change when the data are going to be available for analysis and when you're going to be able to answer the questions in the protocol. So hopefully now, Jan, you get a sense of how big a clinical trial is, what the parts are, but also that in some sense, it's sort of like a manufacturing process wherein, wherein if I delay um, something somewhere, then the thing that I'm most interested in, sort of the product that comes off the end of the manufacturing line, that's going to be delayed too. Right, Steve. So all those uh, stages are there to answer probably the questions in the protocol. So do you uh, take a look at the data while you uh, go through those stages or do you wait until the end to do it? So there are frequently, they're called interim analyses. So, and there are um, reasons of efficacy and safety why you have those interim analyses. So yes, frequently you do stop at a certain point Again, it's all done in a proper way so that you don't break the blinding of the of the study. But uh, yes, you do stop and look at things. And in fact, there are there are now whole trial types that are sort of based on running small cohorts of uh, cohorts, meaning a group of patients, through uh, a protocol up to a certain point, stopping, evaluating, and then making decisions based on what you saw there. So yes, that that is a real part of how clinical trials are designed and run today. Okay, and uh, we have different phases of clinical trials, right? Uh, phase one, two, and three, right? And yes. do you start the whole process and do you create new protocols for each of those phases or is it one continuous uh, process? So in general, there are different protocols that uh, in each phase. However, the idea is that you're mining information from the previous ones for the future ones. And in fact, that's why you have the different stages of clinical development. You, in, during phase one, uh, you're evaluating primarily safety, unless it's oncology where it can be safety and some efficacy. But in general, phase one is, is safety. And so the information you get out of the phase one trials, you're going to use to, uh, it's sort of the, the starting point for uh, many of the parts that go into the phase two protocol and phase two similarly to phase three. So yes, they're, they're, they're connected that way. Um, unfortunately, again, what often happens in the industry though, is that some of the transitions from phase one to phase two to phase three, especially for similar compounds are actually pretty similar, but there, uh, how to put it, a lot of times people start over completely each time and they don't leverage knowledge that's already out there. And that slows down the process of, of creating protocols. And uh, I think this should make sense to the audience since the protocol is the fundamental document that drives everything in the clinical trial. If that is delayed, then you can't even get the process started, right? So it's a very important uh, point to make. So I'm going to give you a series of answers that um, you're not going to typically hear in the industry. And again, why that's going to be is because I come at clinical trials basically as an engineer and a manufacturing guy. So I see the problems from a very different perspective. <clears throat> it's not a um, 
unjustified perspective. It's just a very unusual perspective. And by that, what I mean is everything I'm going to uh, lay out here as the uh, problems that are um, impacting trials in the way that you said, latenesses, uh, uh, you know, uh, and being uh, extremely expensive over budget, et cetera. Uh, when you, I'm going to explain things in a way so that you can see that what is going on is really much more fundamental than the kinds of answers that you typically get when you ask the question that you just asked. Okay, so again, a little bit of an intro there, but um, what you're going to hear is very different than what you usually hear. So in my mind, and you know, engineers frequently think in lists, right? So there's five big problems here. So I'm going to lay them out, and then hopefully we'll get an opportunity to talk about how you solve those problems as well and what happens when you solve those problems. So the first one, and it's the biggest problem, is that really no one understands at a fundamental level how all of those nine processes that we talked about, how they're connected from what I call a first principles perspective. So first principles means that you can go in and you truly understand what's going on and you can describe how if I take this input and I do this to it, I'll get this output, okay? So that's, uh, that's a fundamental first principles understanding of what's going on. And that's the biggest problem in the industry is people don't have a first principles understanding of um, the processes and how they're connected. Uh, again, I'm just going to lay them out and then hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about, um, you know, how to fix these things. Um, the second big problem is that in the industry, people do their pieces of the clinical trial. Like I said, each one of those nine steps has sub-steps and there's uh, people whose entire professions in some cases are dedicated to not, not even just one of those steps, but sometimes a sub-step in one of those steps. So unfortunately in the industry, everybody sits on their own islands and they don't talk to each other. So um, I use that sort of generous um, description of people sit on their islands. I have a, a, a friend in the industry who said, Steve, it's not really islands they sit on. He said, it's more like terror cells. <laughs> and he was laughing because he said, it's like they're forbidden to communicate, right? Upon pain of death, you know, what goes on in their piece to the next piece. But uh, the, the, the problem, you know, you can see it is that if everybody's sitting on their, on their own island and nobody's talking to each other, then how can you ever have a focus on what the end goal is. And that's that's basically the second big problem. Um, third big problem, even on the islands, people don't know how their, how their process works. So um, in, and this is very, you know, for folks in quality manufacturing, if I talk about um, process capability, right? It always, people go, yeah, of course, right? You, if you have a process, you have to know process capability. So um, in manufacturing, right, you have control charts. In the old days, they were paper, right? It's been a long time since then, but um, it, it, you also know there are rules to control charting, right? And you can tell if, you're, if your process is in control or not. Well, there's a process, right? And you understand it, and therefore you can put um, uh, the control chart limits on it. Believe it or not, in clinical trials, the people sit on the islands, they don't know how their processes work. So I, I know, by the way, Jan, I know a lot of this is sort of hard to believe when people hear this, they're like, how can this possibly be? But um, I've often described my time in this part of pharma as sort of Alice in Wonderland, because I came in as an engineer with a manufacturing background. And I, I honestly 
every single day could not believe what I was, what I was seeing. But importantly, like Alice, I stayed there, right? So I could figure this stuff out. Anyway, uh, back to the problems, okay? Uh, problem number four, um, okay, in a world where you have important processes you wanna understand, but you can't understand them from first principles. So what we do today is we apply um, artificial intelligence and machine learning to them. Now, the problem with taking an AI or an ML approach is that really those things are just correlation engines, right? They say, if this happens or if these series of things happens, we see that this thing down here happens. Okay, that's good. If you don't really understand what's going on with your process, use that. But the problem here in our industry is that people are using AI and ML when they shouldn't. So let me try to uh, I'll give sort of a, a rough analogy to this. So if you have a black box sitting on the table in front of you in your office, and you have on one side of the black box, you have the numbers three and three and four. No mathematical operators, just those three numbers. And on the right side of the box, you have the number 10. So you're gonna think about it for a minute and you go, oh, the thing in the box, it does addition. I feed in a three and a three and a four and I get a 10 out the other side, right? Okay. If somebody comes along, you know, uh, who doesn't understand how to add, they'll look at that and go, oh my goodness, there's some magic happening in the box. And there's these numbers over here and there's this number over here and I don't know what's going on. So let's apply machine learning to it, right? Well, that's actually what's happening in the industry. I know it sounds ridiculous, right? But because people don't understand how each one of these pieces of the clinical trial is connected to the next one and what the underlying math is, right? So they use AI machine learning and it really doesn't make sense. Um, the, it's got a very poor predictive power, but everybody's pouring resources into this because uh, they don't have any other alternative. Okay, so that's the fourth problem. And finally, the fifth problem. So uh, when things go wrong in a clinical trial and things always go wrong, they sort of go wrong in predictable ways, but they always go wrong. No one has the tools to see how the downstream processes are impacted. And obviously that's super important, right? Because if the entire reason we're running a clinical trial is to get to the clean data set so you can answer the questions posed in the protocol, then if I'm on my island up here upstream and something happens, but I can't really um, predict or understand what's gonna happen downstream, then everybody's flying blind and people get surprised then by latenesses and, uh, and other impacts related to, that, to those latenesses. Um, so, you know, equally too, uh, in sort of a more positive sense, let's say you're sitting down to design your, your study from the get-go, from the very beginning, and you want to do some things that you think should be able to get you done earlier. We also don't really have the tools to figure that out either. It's the same problem, just a different side of it. Because for example, if I decide that I want to activate more sites, um, or, change the rate at which the patients are screen failing, I need to be able to show exactly what that's gonna do to the time when I'll be able to answer the questions posed in the protocol. So again, that's the fifth problem. So I know that's a lot, right? And it sounds like a lot of problems. And in fact, th these are a lot of fundamental problems, but hopefully we can get a chance to talk about how to solve them as well. Yeah, so Steve, uh, again, uh, thanks for uh, this overview of the issues. And it's uh, buffing for me that uh, uh, as somebody who comes from the 
uh, pharmaceutical production where we have uh, those uh, processes, everything needs uh, uh, to be documented, everything has a logic and all departments has to talk to each other uh, in order to continue further. So it's uh, baffling that there are, you said there are islands that don't speak to each other and don't know what's uh, happening on different steps. So it makes it illogical and uh, inefficient. So it would be interesting for me to hear your solutions. You mentioned that uh, you uh, started a company uh, with a software that uh, should uh, help that. So that would be interesting to know because you also come from uh, the pharma and you're engineers, so you're probably trying to apply some logic to it. And I'm uh, really wish to hear more about it. So uh, what is your solution and really why is not, uh, why and nobody's speaking on that as well? So I, I wish I could answer the question of why no one's uh, taking this approach, but um, you know, uh, yeah. I, I'll, all, all kidding aside, let's uh, let's dive in. Very, very good questions. So um, I'm actually going to leave the software question for the end because it's actually just a, a it's a logical outcome once you hear these other things. So let's start. OK, so um, as you said, uh, you come from a place where process owners understand their processes. OK, so that was how I was trained as well. So when I got into um, uh, the part of the industry where clinical trials were being designed and run, especially, especially once I made the transition from big pharma sort of project management to actually uh, working in the clinical research organizations where the, the nuts and bolts of the clinical trials were being dealt with, that's where I actually took that approach that you just talked about as a process owner um, and, and started to focus on what my processes were. So I'm going to give you a real example of this uh, based on <clears throat> one of the steps that we were talking about, and hopefully this will make sense to you. Okay, so keep the idea of control charts in your head, and uh, here we go. So uh, one of the positions I had, actually, I had it twice at um, um, big global CROs, was I ran the site activation process. So that island, right, the site activation island, that was mine. And there's, uh, I ran that process globally. At one point, I had uh, 600 direct reports in more than 30 countries um, and lots of associated uh, uh, employees as well. So it's a big machine. Okay. So um, as an engineer, though, and as a process guy and having come from manufacturing, the way I looked at it was, what is, what are we doing here? And importantly, one of the first things you always do when you're the process owner is figure out what the cycle time is. So that's actually how I started. So what I did was um, I was doing a lot of things as I was uh, first running uh, one of these global study startup groups, as they're called, site activation group. Um, but what I did was we had a database. We weren't doing um, much with the data in there. But here's the question I asked people. Here's the analysis we did. And this is what we learned. And this is this is going to go a long way to answering your question. So. Every, as we said, nine parts of the clinical trial, I'm talking about part number two. Part number two doesn't start until part number one finishes. So the start of my process, I'm trying to calculate a cycle time here. The start was when the site was selected for inclusion in the trial. So that's the end of part one. The end of it is when that site or a site has the appropriate regulatory and legal approvals to start screening and enrolling patients. So I have two milestones. 
for every site. When was that site selected for inclusion in the trial? And when was that site approved to be able to screen and enroll patients? Now it's just the cycle time. Take the later date, subtract the earlier date, get a cycle time. So you sort of go, well, like, big deal, right? I mean, right? but no one did this, right? So what was fascinating was I did that. Now you have to understand the scale of what I was talking about. I described the number of people and the number of countries. So we were, it's called activating. We were activating five or 6,000 sites a year. And we had a database of, uh, I don't know what it is, 20,000 completed site activations. So we just went in there and, and looked at the cycle times. And importantly, not just the cycle times, but we basically made histograms out of the cycle times. And what we were looking for was, uh, or I was looking for, and um, the underlying math, okay? So here's what we saw. It didn't matter what country you looked at. It didn't matter what therapeutic area you looked at. It didn't matter what client we were working with. All the data were log normally distributed. Right. So they were if you know what a log normal distribution looks like. Right. It sort of looks normal on the way up and then it has a tail at the end, basically. Right. And that's not surprising. Anybody who's been in manufacturing or biology or anything, log normal behavior is pretty common. But it was there. Right. So um, it that was uh, by the way, that was the beginning of sort of a 10 or 12 year journey. Right. That got me to today. But that's what I'm talking about is on your individual island, you can figure out how your process works. And so I knew now at a very high level that my process worked and it was log normally distributed. Now, eventually I figured out why it was not log normally distributed. We're not even going to go into that. But now what I'm saying is on each island, you, you can do the kind of analysis that I just talked about. And then you can figure out sort of what the process looks like and then hopefully uh, figure out what kind of math represents it. If that makes sense, Right. So now what we're saying is you can figure out what's going on in each island. So now we can go back to problem number one, which I said is the most fundamental problem, which is no one understands at a fundamental level how all nine processes are connected to each other from a first principles perspective. Well, now we have the first principle for an island. Now do that for every island. Right. And then connect them and see how they're connected. Now I'm sort of waving my hand at that, but that was 10 plus years of me literally taking on every senior operational position I could in all nine of those places, right? So that I could get my hands on the data and do the kind of analysis that I described for site activation. Now, once you do that, now what I'm saying is claiming is that I know how every process is connected to every other process. And also, if I perturb one of those processes, what's going to happen to the things that happen downstream? So it's a really big claim. I get it, right? But if you follow, I mean, from a manufacturing perspective and a quality perspective, what I just described is pretty logical. So hold on a couple more minutes. I'm going to solve all the problems. Just bear with me and I'll solve them and then we'll pause. So now we solve problem number one. So we now know how all the processes are connected. And we know that from a first principles perspective. Now let's see what happens to problem number two and then problem number four. So problem number two was that trial execution is done on these islands and no one understands what happens on the other islands. And therefore no one understands how what they're doing is gonna impact the next person. Well, we just got rid of that problem because now we can predict, right? If something happens in site selection, 
and I'm the one who owns site activation, if site selection is late and you flow that through the kind of system that I'm talking about, I know now that, um, well, basically I'm never going to meet my original timelines unless I do something drastic to the timing of my process. And now as, um, as someone who understands what a process owner is going to say, uh, Jan, if you go to a process owner and you say, I need you to cut your cycle time by 40%, they're going to tell you, you're out of your mind, right? And yet in my industry, people regularly have those conversations because no one understands, again, the downstream impact. They make um, uh, sort of ridiculous requests. I don't mean it that it comes from a bad place, but people don't understand. So anyway, problem number two, operating on these operational islands where no one understands anybody else, that gets taken care of. Now we're gonna go to problem four, the AI ML problem. Well, remember I said, if you know that what's in that black box is addition, then you don't need AI and ML. And so that's what I'm saying. Problem four, and by the way, in the industry, people have a hard time with me when I say this. Uh, what I say is AI and ML for drug discovery, beautiful, go with it. As a matter of fact, when you're looking at something as complicated as a human being, you're not gonna figure things out otherwise. But if you tell me that you need AI and ML for manufacturing, you're wrong. And the problem is, is that tens and hundreds of millions of dollars have been invested in these approaches, right? So there's, there's a lot of sunk costs. So anyway, we're almost done, right? So that was problem four. And now we're gonna talk about problem five and fix it again with, with how we solve problem one, which was now we have all, all these processes connected and we know how they, they work. So problem number five was basically when things go wrong in a, a clinical trial and they do all the time, no one has the tools to figure out what's going to happen downstream to that thing that I care about most, right? Well, now with problem one solved, I, I know how all the processes work. I know how they're all connected. So now when something goes wrong in a clinical trial, I can simply, well, I won't, sorry, I won't say it's simple. It's simple now. It wasn't simple before, but I can go into um, the, the software basically and show what the downstream in, impact is going to be. And also in a related way, if we're having a, a discussion before we ever start the trial, if we're trying to figure out a way to get done more quickly, and I'm gonna say, okay, let's, let's take this approach um, to reduce the screen fail rate by changing some things, for example, in the protocol. Now, because I have the answer to number one, which is this completely connected set of processes, if I change one of those processes and truncate it, then I'm gonna pull back the time uh, that's required to get to the, the final step, to step nine. So, sorry, that was a lot of explanation I know, but if I, if I had to summarize it, what I'd say is once you understand process capability and you apply it to every single of those nine processes and see how they're connected, then everything starts to make sense and you can make real progress in terms of designing and overseeing clinical trials in a much better way. Right. So for me, from bird perspective, it seems like uh, the whole process uh, is like in a global project manager who oversees everything and, uh, you know, takes the data into account. So is it uh, the issue and is it something that basically the software helps uh, solve by replacing a person that uh, runs uh, in between uh, the islands and discusses uh, with everything? with everyone, everything, uh, the data and, uh, and make decisions. Okay, so Jan, you're, you're, you're gonna get me into big trouble here, but uh, yeah, I'm gonna answer your question. Um, yes, you are correct, right? 
So let me start out first before I say anything really provocative about our industry. Um, I'll put on my project manager hat. So I am PMP certified, right? I've been, I'm a professional project manager among other things. So uh, that's where this statement is gonna come from. So if you look at um, most industries that, uh, and uh, most excluding ours, right? So uh, all industries other than ours. Um, when it comes to project management, um, around manufacturing and other things, project management is no more than 10% of the total cost of the product. And that cost is borne by the manufacturer of the product, not the consumer of the product, okay? 10%, okay? So, and um, again, the person who's, so think of it this way, you go in to buy a new car, right? If someone comes to you and says, well, you know what? Project management costs were uh, higher these past couple months, so your automobile is going to cost more. You're going to say, what are you talking about? That's your problem, right? I'm not paying any more for this car than what I normally would. But uh, now you can sort of see where I'm going to go. In our industry, in fact, project management costs are on the order of a third of all costs. And by the way, people on the call um, know something about costs in uh, clinical trial uh, in clinical trials, you're going to say, no, 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 they're no more than 20%. No, believe me, I know where the bodies are buried. It's more like 30%. Okay. So we just, what happens is you give things different names and it's still project management. Right. And those costs are borne by the consumer. Right. Those are not costs borne by the CRO, uh, the clinical research organization. The you, if you're, for example, the venture capital funded biotech, you're paying for those project management services. And to your point, okay, so that sounds like a pretty dire circumstance. Why does it exist? It exists for exactly the reason that you said, Jan, because you have these islands and the only way to get communication from, from one to the other is you hop in your boat and you go back and forth, right? And you try to make sense of it. So I'm not really, I, I don't mean it at all to be disparaging to people in the industry who do project management, but in fact, the reason the job is so hard is because these fundamentals that we've been talking about are not well understood. Right. So to summarize all that, so because there are so many islands, so many issues, and it's difficult for one or a couple of project managers to deal with it, that's why we need a software that gathers the data, analyzes it, and tells you what to do, basically, right? Right, Steve. So... Uh, that's uh, great to hear that you, through the years, develop such a, a software, and I really hope that uh, it uh, will bear fruits for you. And uh, if it bears fruits for you, it, I understand that it bears fruits for the industry and the companies, the CROs, for everybody, and especially you know the uh, the patients who get their. Uh, treatment much quicker and uh, for probably for fraction of a cost because uh, all of the delays the prices rise right so um, it's a great um, it's probably for me it's uh, sounds uh, interesting and probably somebody who comes from the field and uh, understand much better where you're coming from so it may be even more uh, close to the heart to them and if somebody wants uh, to uh, catch up with you ask you questions uh, and um, have some insights from you about uh, what's going on in the field and see if they uh, can get some consultancy and so on uh, from your site on that, how to improve their processes. What is the best way to uh, get in touch with you? 
Thank you, Jan. Um, so best way to be in touch, LinkedIn is great. Um, also, uh, I have a website. It's uh, the name of my uh, company is Galen FP Solutions. And now everybody knows what the FP is, right? First principles. So Galen, G-A-L-E-N, F-P, solutions, all one word, dot com. Uh, either of those ways are great. And I'd love to talk to people. Um, just one comment here too, because I don't want everybody to walk away from the podcast thinking that this is all about uh, really neat software. That's only part of it, right? The other part of um, what you have to be able to do is to oversee the trial once it's running and then marry up the data from the trial to what you thought was going to happen. So that's also a huge, uh, I spent years uh, developing that capability as well. And the thing that I want to point out, and anybody who's in the industry knows this, in when you're designing and running clinical trials, you have sometimes dozens of systems that you put data in. So you you have to really take that problem into consideration when you um, do operational oversight, and I have. But in any case, Jan, really appreciate the the time, and, and thanks for all the really, really good questions. Yeah, thank you very much, Steve. I wish you the best of luck with uh, your future endeavors. Thank you, Jan. Thanks for listening to the Qualitalks podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. If you want to learn more about GMP, please visit us at www.qualistory.com. Stay compliant and see you at the next one.